Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Well, given that we have shaken off the old year of 2020 and began anew in 2021, what do the state's finances look like in the Carolinas? How healthy are revenues? And how does that translate into the health of our communities? Hello again, I am Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen across the Carolinas for over three decades now. Thank you for supporting it. In a moment, he is the chief financial officer for the state of North Carolina, the Honorable Dale Falwell, Treasurer of North Carolina. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an executive profile featuring Dale Falwell, North Carolina Treasurer. It's not too late to say Happy New Year, so Happy New Year. Thank you for watching and a welcome to your honor. Um, the Honorable Dale Falwell joins us now safely, uh, looks like from his office in Raleigh. Your honor, welcome to the program and I'm, I'm glad to see you again, sir. Let, let, let's start with a fairly broad question. Uh, Mr. Treasurer, you have a very broad knowledge of not just finance, but North Carolina's finances. It's general revenue. You spent time in the General Assembly for a while. You were in local political leadership. So there's not much you don't know about how things work when it comes to uh, public finance. How do you feel about the prospects uh, about North Carolina specifically, not the Carolinas in general, but North Carolina's economic prospects in 2021? Thank you for having me, uh, Chris and crew. The, the balance sheet of North Carolina is in great shape, uh, but we have some significant headwinds facing us uh, associated with, with how we flatten the economic curve of our state, especially in rural North Carolina, and especially with those that have to make their living with their hands and their back and their feet. As we uh, think about your question, as your viewers know, we applied for and received over $4 billion of COVID Care Act money. And on two separate occasions, the General Assembly uh, appropriated that money. Uh, we have uh, nearly $2 billion budget surplus from the previous year. That's gonna come in handy as your viewers know that states and lo local governments and all states are facing budget shortfalls. And that surplus is gonna come in handy as the General Assembly attempts to 
balanced budget for this year. We have nearly a billion dollars of rainy day fund, and it's just by the grace of God that we got this far down into the alphabet in terms of bad storms last year and North Carolina not being more affected by that. And we have nearly $2 billion in the un unemployment trust fund. That's a far different story than when I visited with you seven years ago. As you know, in charge of that agency eight years ago, we had nearly $2.7 billion of unemployment debt. That debt was paid off, surplus was built, and that became very important to your viewers, especially those uh, employers and businesses that were paying mm -hmm. those types of food and pseudo surcharges. So we're in great shape, but we have to focus on transparency, consistency, and be willing to challenge assumptions as it relates to how we get the joy of achievement back into our economy. So, so it, and, we, and we will, I, I promise you, Honor, we're gonna unpack some of the policy around that, but I wanna, I wanna get back to the, the overall sense and feeling you have. If you were to, if, if, you, if you have to hold your feet to the fire and say, well, this year, I think the economy is gonna do X. What do you think X is? I think certain parts of the economy are going to, uh, to, to do it extremely well. Uh, and uh, I think that, as I said, if once, the vaccine gets properly rolled out in North Carolina, you know, we can uh, get back to educating kids and, and opening our businesses back up. And it's all really, really based on that. Um, let's talk a little bit about local government commission. Uh, and before we do that, let, uh, I'm sorry, there's so many things I've got this checkbox next to. Um, the state pension plan, almost $115 billion grew by my calculation, uh, almost 9%, but I noticed in some of your material, it was uh, more about 11%. So what's the difference? What's that two percentage points difference? Would that, would that be all income total return or what, what was the actual audited return last year of the state pension plan? Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. And the, uh, the estimated return is 11%. And the difference between your number and our number is simply the fact that the plan paid out nearly $6.5 billion of gross benefits last year. So when we look at what the value of it was versus what the value is, we have to take into account the money that left the plan. Uh, the plan's paying out nearly $550 million every 30 days to those who have taught, protected, or otherwise served. And that's over $6.5 billion in gross benefits uh, per year. So the pension plan is at $115 billion dollars. It's never been at this level. It's one of the best funded pension plans, not just in the United States, but possibly in the world. And with all the angst and anxiety that our teachers and troopers and other public servants are facing, the safety and security of their pension plan is not one of them. And that becomes very important to the rating agencies as, as we hope that every state would have a AAA bond rating, um, but having a very strong pension plan is, is, is vitally important as we move forward. And when I report all this to you, Chris, very quickly, I'm standing on the shoulders of all the hardworking folks at the Investment Management Division and previous state treasurers who have always conservatively managed this plan and never pretended to have a crystal ball. So uh, congratulations. That is uh, no small feat given what happened last year, even though equity markets uh, and, and fixed income markets did pretty well last year. But that, that enables the state of North Carolina and your office to do a few things. And one is you're going to be reporting to the General Assembly within the next 30 days or so, the borrowing capacity for North Carolina. But the other thing before we get to that, Your Honor, is this idea 
of some of the local and smaller municipalities that are facing, I'll call it insolvency or certainly an uphill battle when it comes to finance. So local government commission is also one of your big responsibilities. Give us a sense of how many communities in North Carolina at least are at risk financially and how is, is that a contagion that spreads or what does that mean for the larger state? You might remember a few decades ago uh, when Warren Buffett said in his annual report, uh, you can't, can't tell who doesn't have a bathing suit on until the tide goes out. And uh, I think you remember that. And what I'm in context of your question, uh, the tide has been going out, especially in rural North Carolina for about 20 years as these communities have depopulated. But now the tide went out even quicker with COVID-19 and uh, the impact. Uh, we have a county, for example, Terrell County in the eastern part of our state, its population is the size of Myers Park High School in Charlotte. And between St. Patrick's Day and July 4th, their sales tax revenue fell 26%. And half the property of that county doesn't pay property tax. These are some of the challenges that are facing rural North Carolina. And as chair of the local government commission, as well as chair of the state banking commission, uh, this is a very high concern. Uh, Rural North Carolina in general, especially eastern rural North Carolina, as, as I say, Shalote and Charlotte are sound very similarly and they're spelled similarly. Uh, but the fact is, is that they're in far different boats uh, today. And we have pressures that are facing Shalote, North Carolina, inside the city of Charlotte. So this is a very serious problem. And your viewers may uh, remember just a few months ago that uh, Barron's did a major piece about the, uh, one, the $1 trillion hole. Uh, that's that's happening, and see, I never could be Vanna White. Uh, yeah. Go the other way. Go the other. Way. Anyway, the one trillion dollar hole uh, that that some that communities across North Carolina are facing. Uh, well, and I, I don't want to underplay it, sir. Um, and it, and it, it is important to people who live in those communities and surrounding communities. How important is it in the bigger picture? And again, back to this idea of if we have some small communities that either through racial inequities or economic mobility or the lack of economic mobility or the difference between urban and rural divide, what, give a, so how, I, I guess, can you help us understand how these smaller communities or even mid-sized communities that have this financial challenge is that specific to them, or does that mean that this is, again, I want to use the term, is this a contagion that could catch across the state? Uh, it could. Uh, I think of it in, in terms of the body. Uh, we all know the importance of a strong torso, but we also had to have strong legs and arms, and that's what I consider uh, these communities in rural North Carolina to be. And it all comes back to the basic level of services, mm -hmm. good access to good public education, access to affordable health care and access to clean uh, water and affordable sewer and electricity rates. I mean, all this thing connects, especially in rural North Carolina, as we try to help them uh, out of the uh, what's happened to them, especially since in the last year with COVID. Do you, you get you get the feeling that the members in the General Assembly on balance and not just by drawing political lines or party lines, um, are they sympathetic in a year that, as you described earlier, sir, with a $2 billion surplus, plus, plus, 
um, that there will be more sympathy and more generosity when it comes to deploying funds to those communities that need it here and now, right now, in fact? I think they are. We were uh, able to get the viable utility uh, fund legislation passed last year, which uh, puts a few million dollars into helping some of these water sewer systems, some of which within 50 miles of where you're sitting right now and 50 miles from where I'm sitting. Uh, so uh, they are very, very aware of what's going on in, in rural North Carolina. And I have found that their doors and their minds as well as their hearts are open, even though they may not live in those areas. Because as I said earlier, uh, these are very important functions of our of our entire state in, in terms of our entire economy. And not only them, but the North Carolina League of Municipalities, the County Commissioner Association, the UNC School of Government, all of us with the local government commission are working hand in hand to figure out what's right, get it right, and keep it right on behalf of some of these distressed communities. And by the way, there's nearly 200 that are either on the unit assistance list or the watch list. That's out of 1,300 entities that report to the local government commission. The local government commission was formed after the bankruptcy of Asheville during the depression. So it's 100 counties, 550 cities, water and sewer districts, airport authorities, universities, and hospitals, for example. Well, that's still somewhere around, and this is a back of the napkin estimate, but still about 14, 15, 16% at risk communities. Is that, is that an average? How does that average compare nationally to other states like South Carolina? Well, the North Carolina is a unique state in terms of the local government commission. Most states never even had anything like that for decades. Uh, but these numbers I'm giving you, Chris, and for your viewers, these are numbers that are based on audits generally that were completed in 2019. They don't reflect what has happened with COVID, for example, when I was given uh, the numbers for Terrell County, where their sales tax revenue fell 27% over a three-month period of time. So... I think that as far as the headwinds uh, facing these communities, they're going to get stronger, not weaker. Um, for a couple of years, uh, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone that's known you for any period of time, you have been beating the drum about pricing transparency, and certainly that's the case in healthcare, um, to the detriment uh, of a relationship, and, and apologies, but these are my words, detriment to the relationship that the Treasurer's Office may have with healthcare providers in the state. But Nonetheless, you got a little coverage when an executive order came out of the White House, the Trump White House, to support pricing uh, transparency. Uh, what is the risk that the new administration will unwind that executive order? And does that put you back at square one when it comes to looking for transparent pricing in healthcare? Well, let's be very clear with your viewers. Uh, my concern is not with people who, act, who actually do the work of providing healthcare. Uh, it's with the multi-million dollar executives of these multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, as your viewers uh, may have seen before, when I attempted to find out how much the state of North Carolina is paying for its health care, this was what was returned to me as the state treasurer. This is the master charge list that shows that uh, of what we were supposed to pay for health care. So that's not a printer problem, right? That's all being redacted. That's, that's all been redacted. And uh, so now what we have is we have the, uh, in, the North, in the United States Court of Appeals, the executive order to bring transparency to healthcare. It, they want at the lower level. Now they want at the U.S. Court of Appeals. And it should be shocking to your viewers uh, to know that 
the response to losing those cases to bring transparency to healthcare, get rid of secret contracts by the hospital association. It says, we continue to believe that the disclosure of privately negotiated rates does nothing to help the patient understand what they actually pay for healthcare. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Anyone who's on the side of secret contracts and non-transparent healthcare is going to be on the wrong side of history. Bill Gates says it, Warren, in some respects, Warren Buffett says it. Everybody knows that 20% of their income is going toward something they don't understand the price and the value of. And we're, all we're trying to do is get rid of secret contracts, push the power to the consumer. And for your viewers, let me tell you what I think that would mean. That would mean an economic gold rush in North Carolina if we were known as the state with transparent health care, not just for state employees, but for all employees of any company. Do you get, are you getting hospitals to come to come to the table? Doesn't sound right, but do you get hospitals again, more sympathetic to having a conversation about this? I have uh, said openly that uh, the, the association that controls all the hospitals is a cartel. That's a very strong word. But if you go to the Webster's Dictionary, a cartel is an association which is formed to restrict prices and limit competition. That's exactly what's happening is the cartelization of healthcare in North Carolina. And what happens when you have the consolidation of healthcare into fewer hands, what you have is you have lower quality, you have lower access, and you have higher cost. Those are exactly the three opposite things that we desire on behalf of those that teach, protect, and otherwise serve. Uh, on the issue of healthcare, you are a COVID survivor. Uh, so again, congratulations and good fortune for you and your family and, and for the treasurer's office, of course. Um, how do you, with that, with that recollection and with that experience that you've had, how do you rate North Carolina's response in deploying the COVID vaccine? Uh, one of the worst in the country. Uh, our response is more reflective of a vaccine rollout of a third world country and not the 10th most populous state in, in the United States. Uh, I'm 62 years old. I can't remember ever going to a hospital to be vaccinated. We should have had a plan that over the development of the last 11 months that pushed the power down to the people who have been vaccinating our citizens for a hundred years, primary care physicians, pediatricians, all pharmacies, not just some pharmacies, and push the power and the vaccine down to the people that are most accustomed to administering vaccines. We don't know where the vaccines are. We don't know how many have been destroyed because of the inability to find arms to put them in. And at the same time, just a few miles from where you're sitting, we have Trine Medical, which has 130 thousand patients and no vaccines. And you can say the same thing up till last week about Wilmington Health. We're having major hotspots in our uh, prison and correctional facilities and our adult uh, living facilities. I mean, this is turned into an epic disaster and it's no time to be pointing fingers at the federal government or back to the state government. I hope the governor will take control of every vial of vaccine that still remains in the state and be and every time a vial of vaccine arrives in North Carolina that he he will and 
people know exactly where it's going. We have to get these vaccines in, into the arms of those that need it the most. Um, on that same issue, and we could unpack that and go down that rabbit hole, but we're going to run out of time. On that same issue, Dr. Mandy Cohen was on this program recently uh, talking about all those challenges, not just around public health, but around mental health. What happens to mental health now that it's a compound effect of COVID? And what I mean by that, Your Honor, is the idea that many folks are not just discouraged, but the idea that public health has had this lockdown and and it exasperated mental health providers, both public and private. How, how does that factor into what we should be doing for public and mental health? Well, it's another compounding uh, negative impact on mental health. And that's why uh, at the state health plan, uh, I as chairman of the board, as well as the board of trustees over a year ago, in, before anyone had ever heard of COVID, we increased the payout for primary care physicians and for mental health specialists. We think that primary care physicians and mental health specialists are closest to the health and well-being of, of our communities. And that's why we did that. Can you do and, more of that? Yes. Well, in addition, the Board of Trustees, for example, just approved the elimination of deductibles for people who go to our, our clear pricers. We don't want there to be any financial barriers for people to get the primary care and the mental health uh, that they so desperately need, especially in this COVID world. In, on March uh, 1st, uh, you have announced that you will have a report for the General Assembly and the Governor's Office around um, uh, about the health of North Carolina when it comes to issuing bonds. The general idea is the, the statute says 4% of the general revenue uh, should not it should not be issuing more than, and I'm not going to get this right, Your Honor. So please uh, um, help correct this. But that bonds in North Carolina are held at a limit of four percent of general revenue. Where is the the state's health around bond issuance? And the second part of that question is, when we've got transportation needs and education needs that are stout indeed, how do we factor that into what North Carolina should be doing? with bonds and deploying that? Great question. And some of your viewers may be asking, you know, what are bonds, what are state pensions, what does state health care have to do with, you know, business? It has everything to do with business. As, as you know, the largest business in North Carolina is the state government. The second largest are the counties, the third are the cities, and the fourth are the school districts. So anytime that you do anything from the efficiency standpoint uh, that, that helps business, helps those entities, it's also helping everybody. More importantly, many of your viewers who have businesses, one of their biggest expenses is property taxes. You know, the biggest expense of whoever they pay property tax to are pension, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and interest, and principal and debt. But you asked me specifically about the Debt Affordability Commission, which is one of the 21 major duties and responsibilities that I have as state treasurer. Uh, we are uh, compelled every year to issue a debt affordability study and for your viewers, that would be just like an analysis of what their own credit limits would be in their personal life. And uh, we are one of the few states to have this for a very long period of time, just like the local government commission. And oh, by the way, I wish the federal government had a debt affordability commission, uh, but they don't. Uh, but the debt affordability commission sort of uh, in the old school days, many bikes that we used to ride had governors on it. And that governor kept the engine from over revving. So the debt affordability study is sort of to keep the state 
from over revving and getting out over its skis in terms of, of borrowing money. Is the state close to the limit? The, uh, on the general fund, the state is not close to the limit. Um, DOT, because we've talked about the uh, overspending and mismanagement of DOT before, uh, the DOT is basically maxed out their credit card for the next 10 years. Uh, but uh, we just issued over 1.7 or refunded $1.7 billion for the debt in North Carolina uh, during the month of November of last year. So we are actively taking advantage of, of lower interest rates and trying to figure out what's right, get it right, and keep it right, and to make sure that we don't over-rev our engine because the rating agencies, equivalent for your viewers of a credit score or sanitation grade for a restaurant, the rating agencies are very concerned about uh, well-funded pension plans. They're very concerned about not getting out over your skis as far as issuing debt. And if you issue debt, they want to see a solid plan for paying it back, not just refunding it. Uh, we have less than a minute left, Your Honor. Uh, I want to ask you, as a former school board member in Forsyth County and Winston-Salem, and also, again, could go back to the experience that you had early on in the pandemic around being a COVID survivor. How would you, how would you approach getting kids back in schools? What would you suggest? Transparency, consistency, but the ability to challenge assumptions and to know that one size fits none in many instances. The situations we have going on in some parts of the state as far as opening schools are far different than what they might be in Charlotte. I attended Cook Elementary School. That school has a capacity of a thousand kids because it was later converted to a middle school. It now has 200 children in it. So there's an elementary school inside of a school district that could socially distance and have full the del delivery of, of classrooms. Okay, all right, that's gonna have to be important. I'm sorry, sir. That's going to have to be the last word, but thank you for uh, taking a whole half hour and spending time with us. Thanks for your leadership. Um, and, and, and please stay healthy. You know, that doesn't mean you can't recatch it. So make sure you continue to wash your hands. Not that you need me telling you that, but best of luck to you going forward. Thank you for having me. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, the Duke Endowment, Bearings, Grant Thornton, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.